indeed. I hope that that is the story of your life, that this is your story, and that this is your song. And this morning, we are going to be turning again to 1 John. If you don't have a sermon outline, please lift your hand, and these kind gentlemen that are running to the front will be glad to provide one to you. If you're joining us online, I want you to know that you can even now go and download this sermon outline, either with the answers or without the answers, and be able to follow along carefully. The way we study the Bible, this is very necessary. We'll be looking at several different passages of Scripture. I want to encourage you to warm up your pen and come into a learning mode, but not only a learning mode, not only a scholastic academic mode in a way here. The Word of God is going to be preached, and it is our job to look at what God's Word says and allow Him to be speaking to our hearts. It is His Holy Spirit that can bring the power of His Word to bear upon our hearts. This morning we're looking at the blessed assurance of the believer's security. We have for the last 30 messages been looking at this tiny letter of 1 John, 1 John 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and we're now in the closing passages here. If you notice the box on the page in front of you, these are the last verses of First John's, of, of John's letter of, entitled First John. So these are the closing verses. And there are some blessed assurances that he makes. All through the book, we've been seeing that he wants to clarify the gospel, and he wants those who are following Jesus to have the assurance that they need for this life. This is not about creating um, doubt. This is about wanting to fortify faith and to create assurance in us, but we must be able to look at it rightly, and so that's what he challenges us to do. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, we're going to read this passage, though we, are only, only be, we will only be focusing on the last half of verse 18 for this message. Let's read. It says, when we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. I'm going to stop right there. That first phrase, we just preached four messages based upon that phrase because it presents to us some questions. Does that mean you never sin again? That's not what that means. But does it mean that your life has been transformed and then you're, you're not continuing in the mode of sin, but you're now continuing in the mode of sanctification? That is what that means. And so notice here, we know that every, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Can you say Amen. Okay, now we'll figure out what that means in a minute. Okay, you said amen to it. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the world lies in the power of the evil one. John is reminding of some very important things. Look at verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and the eternal life. Let's read the last verse together, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So in our review, notice here in verse 18, in the first half of it that we just read at the beginning there, true believers will not have an unbroken bondage to sin. If someone is truly a believer, we see that they just do not go on sinning. True believers have a broken bondage to sin. Fill this in, next, next part. True believers experience Christ's victory over sin and death. You can't come to be transformed by Jesus and not begin finding his victory over sin and ultimately over death. We've just heard Justin pray about that. Um, we just heard Justin talk about the fact that those who believe in Jesus, Jesus said it himself, he said, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's talking about, yes, the physical death is, is really nothing in comparison to the second death 
of the wrath of God. And what Jesus says, that he who believes in me, that though you die, you're going to live. You're going to live in forgiveness. You're going to live in eternity with God. You see, this verse, as we come to verse 18, and as we kind of mull over it again, I want us to see here, then the second part of it, really verse over the whole thing, it's this picture that Jesus Christ, fill this in, protects and keeps born-again believers. That's what he does. He protects them and he keeps them. So, In verse 18, we see that. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. We're going to look and see what those, those mean. And the evil one does not touch him. So notice this and fill this in. Notice that Jesus is the one being spoken of in verse 18b. We need to be careful um, with with these references of he and him, we want to see who they're relating to and who they're pertaining to, and we recognize that it is Jesus. Look at verse 18b in the slide in front of you or on the outline. The first one where it says, but he, but he who is born of God protects him, the he is Jesus. So put that down there below that in the blank below it. This is speaking of Jesus who was born of God. Jesus, what you say, well, wait a minute, can't Christians be born again? Yes, but that's not what this is referring to. At this, He already referred to that at the first part of the verse. Now we see that those who are born of God, we start to see the clearer picture that the Savior is the one who was first born of God in order to deliver us from our sin. So he who was born of God protects him. Now, who is the him? That is everyone who is born of God. So that's why Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the preeminent one who overcomes death. Jesus overcomes death as the Messiah so that all others can find salvation in him. So, Notice with me that this is speaking of the one who comes from God, who was born of God. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, I'm going to ask you to read it out loud together with me. I absolutely love this passage. It's at the beginning, not of 1 John, but of the gospel of John. And those are just just incredibly beautiful um, opening to John's gospel. Look what it says here in chapter 1 and verse 14. Let's read it out loud. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Can you underline that? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's keep going. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, as he's opening his gospel, he is describing this Jesus, and he's called the living Word, the Logos, the Logos that would come into the cosmos and to save the fallen world, the fallen universe that had denied God. So God comes in the flesh. This is the idea of Christmas. This is the idea that we celebrate the incarnation. The Word became flesh, and then what did He do? He dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. He kept showing us His glory. He showed us his glory when he healed the sick. He showed us his glory when he preached the truth of God. He showed us his glory when he stood up over the sea and said, peace, be still, and it became still. He showed us his glory when he spent time with tax collectors and women who had a bad reputation over and over again. He showed us his glory when he shows up at a funeral and he says, young man, arise, and a dead boy gets up. You see, over and over again, we see his glory in Christ Jesus. And we see that he wasn't just full of holiness and wrath, but he was full, excuse me, of grace and truth. Marcy, I think I need one of those bottles. Thank you. Thought I was over it. I'm not over it. I I shared with uh, the, uh, thank you, babe. I shared with uh, the Wednesday night crowd with this cough. It's so strange. I'll be spending time with somebody in the office, and for those of you who've been in there, somebody will be pouring out a big problem in their life, and I'll go, <clears throat> and I'm like, 
I'm not laughing. I'm really not laughing. <clears throat> I'll go to say something. I'm like, <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it's not funny. So um, I, I'm not, uh, yeah, okay. Look at John 3, 16. You know John 3, 16. We're seeing that this verse is talking about the one born of God. And so if you would, read verse 16 strong without me. Um, read verse 16. You know this verse. If you don't know this verse, this may be the first verse that you should ever memorize. It is the gospel in, in a nutshell. Read verse 16. For God... And then look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of what? The only Son of God. And remember with me, when we're talking about believing in the name, right below that where it says that believed in the name, remember that that is talking about the name Jesus or Yeshua. And the name Yeshua means Yahweh saves. So the picture is here that when someone does not believe in the name of Jesus, the recognition is this, that they are not believing that God is the one who saves. Somehow they are believing that they can save or that someone else can save. And starting point, we spent a long time on that this morning looking at all that God did to save us and the great danger of believing in ourselves, the great danger in believing in our own little arrows, trying to get up to God. Instead, Christ comes to us. He is born in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the Word lays down His life. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. And this is where in Hebrews the author is writing and he's saying and he's showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. Some would be tempted to worship the angels, to be awed and oohed and awed by the angels. But here we see that Jesus is far beyond them. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here we see the picture of the second person of the Trinity leaving in perfect obedience the halls of heaven and coming to earth to lay down his life for us. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 5, we see, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son today I have begotten you. Now, the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is, is constantly, eternally emanating from the Father. Um, when we look at Trinitarian doctrine, when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, we see that the Son is always coming from the Father, has always been coming from the Father. And the Spirit is exalting the Son, and the Spirit is exalting the Father. This Father, Son, and Spirit are working in perfect harmony. And we see that the Father, His Son, and His Son in order to show us what love looks like. Jesus was at the foundation of the world. Jesus was begotten, but he was not created. That is something very important for us to understand, that he eternal, eternally emanates from the Father, and this is the nature of the Trinity. We know this from studying throughout all of the Scripture, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, what the Bible says about the Trinity. And so that's what we, we come to see, that this picture is that there's this incredibly beautiful picture and understanding of the nature of God that shows us his love and his glory. Look at 1 John 4 in verse 9, perhaps the, the best one to end on here. This comes from our own study of 1 John. This is the book we've been studying. Look what it says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Was it, was, you can put up the word above manifest, obvious. So this is how God's love became obvious. You could see it. You, 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 could, you could see it and it was clear. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, and then look what it says. Let's read it out loud. 
so that we might live through him. You see, that's the reason. Don't turn it over. Don't turn it over. Stare. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. You see, this one up in the box in the top of the page, at the, in verse 18, the part that's underlined, but he who was born of God protects him, and that him is everyone who's been saved, and the evil one does not touch him. We see that that's who this is talking about. When we look at the bottom of the page, we see that it is the love of God that made this obvious, and then we see that God sends his son into the world so that we might live through him. Right down below that, John um, 14. In John 14, uh, we see, excuse me, in, in John chapter 10 and verse 13, it says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Um, that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Um, notice the next page, safe to turn it over. Jesus is the one who delivers and protects believers from Satan. Jesus is the one who delivers and protects believers from Satan. Now, that's what verse um, 18, letter B, is talking about. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And so, this great protection is the, from the, the good shepherd. Look at what it says in the next statement there. Jesus is the good shepherd who protects his flock from the evil one. Um, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 is one of my favorite verses that shows this. In fact, when I was in college, my sister sent me um, a letter and she said, Andrew, you need to join the group that we call the Devil Busters. And I'm like, okay, you know, at the time there was this movie called Ghostbusters, you know, so I'm dating myself. And she was kind of kidding around, but she said, there, there's a group called the Devil Busters. And we find that the original Devil Buster was not us, but it was the Lord Jesus. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Look at this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. And so that is the great picture. You want to know who the great devil buster is? It is the Lord Jesus. He conquers Satan and his power. He conquers not only Satan and his power, but he conquers all that is involved in sin and death. And so we see in this verse that he who is born of God protects him, that's Jesus who is born of God, protects everyone who has been saved, and the evil one does not touch him. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of what? His beloved son. Now you would be tempted to think that that verse is symmetrical in its, in its language, but he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, you could say, of light, right? But that's not what it says, though that would be uh, true technically. We see that this verse is clarifying that the kingdom of light is the kingdom of his beloved son. So he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are no longer in bondage to Satan's rule. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. In verse 14 it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might, underline it, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is who? The devil. And deliver, circle that word, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So this is the deliverer. John wants his readers to know that those who are true believers in Jesus Christ have been delivered from the schemes of the devil. They are no longer going to be destroyed by him. Now, part of the picture, you'd say, well, wait a minute. It says, and the evil one does not touch him. Well, I mean, I, I happen to remember uh, some different stories in the Bible that make me think that believers can be touched 
by the devil. Well, John is talking about the ultimate rule of the devil and the ultimate touch of the devil in holding. In fact, the word touch means to grasp. And so I want us to see here, notice the next bullet point, Satan can tempt and harass believers. Can I get an amen? Amen. Sometimes he tempts and harasses us. But never can he reclaim them. They have been purchased with the blood of the Lamb, and they are his forever. Now, we see in Job chapters 1 and 2 that sometimes God has great purposes that, that in, which, in which we see that Satan buffets us, that Satan comes against us, and ultimately in God's grand economy of scale, the Lord knows what he's doing in causing us to grow in righteousness, causing his gospel and his power to be seen and shown. Now, and at the time, it may be very difficult for us. It may be very hard for us. Job was not harassed by Satan because he had sins that needed to be worked out. Instead, it was Job who had lived a righteous life. It was Job who was strong in the Lord. It was Job who was serious in his relationship with God. And that is the very reason that God allowed him to be tested. And God ultimately restored to Job a thousand times over what Satan had taken away. We see the salvation of God rules and reigns over Satan's attempts to tempt us, harass us, and try to reclaim us. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, this is talking about Peter. And you remember Peter was the open mouth insert foot disciple. Peter would always say, Lord, I'll never leave you. I'm here forever. Lord, I'll stand with you. Peter grabs the dagger, cuts off the Roman soldier's ear, and says, we're ready to fight. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we know that Satan wants us. We know that Satan wants a piece of us. And what we recognize is that John is wanting us to know that if we are in Christ, we are secure in Him. You see, Jesus, fill it in, Jesus keeps His redeemed. This is a theme throughout the New Testament, and in fact, it's a theme throughout the Bible. I haven't given Old Testament scriptures here. There are many that show that God in His sovereign purposes, both Old Testament and New Testament, He is holding on to His children. He delivers His children. He keeps His redeemed. Look at John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, these are These are the true believers. These are true Christians. And that's a lot of what 1 John has been about, is helping us figure that out, helping us identify what is true faith. That's good for you to consider. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, underline it, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And just to clarify, in verse 30 he says, I and the Father are one. (laughs) You see, this is God. This is God who in the Father and in the Spirit who seals us and then the Son who purchases us. This is God saving his people. And he's saying that no one can take you away from him. Oh, my friend, that should be incredibly encouraging to you. That should be incredibly um, uh, thrilling to you to know that in your darkest hour and in your deepest struggle that God says you are mine and you're always going to be mine. The second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. 
And I am convinced that he is able to guard that uh, until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, underline that last part of the phrase there, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see, God is able to guard the promise of the gospel. The gospel which is entrusted to the apostle Paul, and Paul is saying, I know him. And, and the, you, you have to understand this, that part of what Paul is saying here is, because I know him and I know that he doesn't lie and that I know that he has the power to fulfill, I know that he is going to guard my salvation until I'm finally with him. The Apostle Paul knows that. Do you know that? Do you have that confidence in God? He wants you to. That's why John wrote what he wrote. What about Jude 24 and 25? There's only one chapter of it, so it can either be called Jude 1, 24 or 25, or it can be called 24 and 25. Look at verse 24. I love this passage. This is the last two verses of the letter of Jude. We studied it about five years ago. It's a mind-blowing letter that describes all the false teachers who will come. In fact, it says those false teachers that were going to come, that you were warned about, they're here now. And that was 2,000 years ago. And so that's the letter of Jude. It describes false teachers about why they do what they do. But he's writing to believers. And he's writing to believers, warning them. And he's writing to believers, encouraging them. And just tell me if these are not some of the most encouraging verses in all of the New Testament. Look at verse 24. He ends it with a doxology, with a praise. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority from all time and now and forever. Amen. You see, now look at what he's ending that letter with. He's part of the picture is you may have falsehoods all around you. You may have false teachers all around you. But if you're really God's, he's going to keep you. And he's going to hold you. And he's going to protect that which he has begun in you. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. I love this. And we sing a song that kind of comes from this verse here in the life of the church. Um, Christ, our sure and steady anchor. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That means, this means into the holy of holies. This means into the very presence of God. This is a throwback to the great temple where there was a great curtain that it was there separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. Look what it says in verse 20. Where Jesus has gone, you see he's gone into the holy of holies, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, this Lord Jesus is the sure and steady anchor of the Christian soul. Now, when do you need an anchor most? In a storm. We need an anchor most. In fact, there's a lot of times, I mean, we boat a lot. We, my mom and dad have a boat down in the Keys. And all, all my life, we grew up boating. My great-grandfather built a beautiful a wooden boat in Miami in the 1940s, and it, we had it until uh, several years ago, and it was finally too old to keep up anymore, a 42-foot motor sailor. And I remember the whole family would all go out and spend the weekend on the boat. It, 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 uh, you know, the fact that your grandfather had built it, had gone to the Bahamas 40 times. It had gone to the Bahamas 40 times, back and forth. It had a little tiny diesel engine in it, and um, it wasn't fancy, but it was beautiful, and it was just built for that. And I remember one night we were off of a, uh, off a reef called Hens and Chickens, um, which is down off of Tavernier, Florida. And we were spending the night, and I remember the wind started picking up. Dad had said the forecast called for some squalls to come through. And I remember that the squalls started getting stronger and stronger, and you could hear the wind through the rigging, all of the, the mast and all of the, the uh, cables. And it began really blowing. Everybody else was asleep. 
And Dad and I were awake back there catching yellowtail. And um, I remember that I just started to become concerned. And Dad said, son, the anchor that we have is twice the size of the anchor that this boat needs. And we have set it in a very, very strong location with a long line so it pulls properly on the ocean. He said, son, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about the anchor. We have a steady anchor, and we're, we're fine. And what a great peace that brought to me to know that, boy, the anchor that we have is sufficient. My friends, the anchor of Jesus Christ is 10 trillion times beyond what you need. He has all of the hold and all of the power that he needs in order to hold you. Now, this is a glorious truth that we would hold on to the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that we have in Christ. Remember this, fill this in. Only Christ keeps our souls. We do not keep our souls. If it was up to you, you would be lost. But for Christ, Christ is the one who keeps our souls. Now this begs the question, well, what do Christians do? How, how do we hold on? I mean, we, this verse is about depending upon Jesus, the one who was born of God to save us and that Satan cannot touch us, does that mean that Christians don't do anything? There are some who would very unwisely answer that in the affirmative. You just, you just exist. You just kind of live. You, you, you go on. It's all about grace, and it's nothing more. No. I mean, there's a great picture, and we'll see a statement at the end of this that ties it together. But notice this. Believers are called to keep important aspects of themselves. There's no doubt. I mean, the scriptures speak for themselves. Number one, Christians keep themselves pure. This is written to the, from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and he's saying, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. And then what does he say at the end of that verse? Keep yourself pure. You are called to keep yourself pure as unto the Lord. Notice number two, Christians keep the commandments of Christ. We see this in Jesus' words, and we also see it in John's words in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 22, and, whoever, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we, look what it says, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Jesus says, those who do my commandments, those who keep my commandments are those who know me and love me. So this is a, a very real part of our Christian life that we do indeed keep the commandments of Christ. Number three, Christians keep the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have, what does he say? I have kept the faith. I have held on to that which held on to me, he would say. Look at verse four. Christians keep themselves unstained by the world. Can you put an exclamation point? at the end of that? Maybe you need to put a, parenthes I mean, a uh, question mark in parentheses. Is that true of you? Look at James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to what? Let's read it out loud together. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, it is possible to live in the world and not be of the world. Um, I don't think that that's possible to say, well, I can, you know, um, live in the sin of the world and it doesn't really affect me as, as some type of a dichotomy between the spirit and the flesh as some um, heretics used to believe in the third and fourth century. That's not what this is talking about. What this is saying is, no, actually remain unstained from the world. This means don't act and, and do what the world does. This means don't run after the things that the world is running after. This week, I, I shared with you yet another, an, another uh, post by Al Mohler from the briefing. How many of you received that email that mentioned the briefing? Okay, keep your hand up real high. Lift your hand. If you did not receive that email, 
I want to encourage you to go online and register with our email system. Maybe you've, you've somehow gotten blocked or your filter is filtering it out. Occasionally, we send some emails that are, that are really, really important. And, and he is talking about this very thing, that the world is running headlong down the road of its thinking and its re- rejection of God and his holiness, specifically in the area of our sexuality and our identity. And sure, the Disney Corporation is absolutely committed to the message that attacks the image of God. And I think you need to listen to that briefing link from this last week. I mean, the the stakes have never been higher and the case has never been clearer. If we raise our children listening to all of the messaging from the movies and the shows, not just of Hollywood, but also from Orlando, your children will be stained by the world. And you need to make some hard decisions. There are alternatives to that, and there's a lot of alternatives to that. I mean, for one thing, our kids probably need to be serving at home more and working at home. If you do all the cho- if you don't have a chore program for your kids at home, parents, they need to do more than just study and do academics. They need to learn how to take care of your house. They need to learn how to take care of themselves. They need to have a system of responsibilities and rewards. I want to encourage you to spend time on that. If they spend time with their academics, they spend time enjoying you and enjoying God's Word and enjoying learning the responsibilities of home and the ethics of good work, they won't have time for all the entertainment that is gutting their morals and polluting their minds. And if your kids haven't learned to work and, and be productive and make money outside the home, that's a good thing for them to learn too. We don't need to raise snowflakes that don't know how to work and expect everything to be given to them. This is a mentality that is against the Word of God. Your children need to learn the value of work. Work is not a four-letter word. Adam and Eve were working in the garden before the fall. Work is a good thing, and our our society is, nobody wants to work more and more, and we we certainly don't want to subject our children to that. I want to encourage you to push back against that. I think that you need to raise a little industrialist. You need to raise, you know, a a young girl who can become a Proverbs 31 woman. A Proverbs 31 woman is powerful and strong. You need to raise a young man who grows up to be strong, who understands and has the ability to provide for his family. The world will stain us if we allow it. Number five, Christians need to keep themselves from idols. 1 John 5, chapter 5 and verse 21. Little ch- Let's read it out loud together. It's a really long one, right? Look at verse, chapter 5 and verse 21. Let's read it. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We're going to be preaching on that one in a couple of weeks because that's the last verse of 1 John. We're told to keep ourselves from idols. Number six, Christians keep God's Word. And this also comes from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And it goes on to say that we keep his word, that we love those that are around us, that we obey him. So we keep his word. We don't just live however we want to live. God's word, now listen, you can't keep his word if you don't know his word. That's part of the reason we study the Bible when we're here. But let me just give you a hint. 
all your study, your Bible study for the week should not be right here. This time is just to help you learn how to study the Bible and to hear from God. I want you to see through the way that we study that every word here means something and you can understand it. You can know it. This is why you need to become a student of God's Word. This is why you need to take New Testament survey and Old Testament survey in our seminars. This is why you need to study New Testament, excuse me, systematic theology and biblical theology. This is why you need to grow in the disciplines of coming to know God's Word. This is why you just need to read your Bible. Do you read your Bible? Or you just sit around and watch Fox News and CNN? Both of them will rot your brain. Or the Lord forbid all the other garbage. Hmm. May we keep his word. If we want to keep his word, we have to know his word. Just start reading. You say, well, I read it and I don't understand. You just start reading. Trust me. Just start reading. And when you read, I met with somebody this week, and I said, when you go to read God's Word, you simply say, Lord Jesus, I believe that this is your Word for me, and I pray that you would help me to understand what I read. Just begin to pray that prayer before you read the Bible. Just ask Him to help you understand what you read, and I will guarantee you, God's not going to go, no, not going to do that. I promise, that's not the way the heart of God, that's, that's not the way He thinks. He wants you to read his word. He wants you to understand it. And if you'll humble yourself and begin to pray, he will move that area of your life. Number seven, Christians keep themselves in the love of God. Now, this does not mean that they are saving themselves and that they're maintaining their salvation. But no, it is, it is this picture that look what Jude 1 and verse 21 says Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This means that you continue to wait upon him. You stay in his love. You stay looking to him. Um, I, I could also say um, that Christians keep the vigil of waiting for Christ's return. We see that. Jesus is coming back, but he's only coming back for those who are awaiting him. He's not coming back for those who are not awaiting him. The Bible's very clear on that, says it in several places. He's coming back for those who are looking to him, expecting him, wanting. Now, that doesn't mean you need to run to Israel and quit your job and live on the roof of some flat house in Israel like many have done in the past and just sit there looking up into the heavens waiting on him to come. There's people that starve to death up there doing that. That's not what that means. But we can in our heart and in our life live in such a way that we long for his return and that we will not shrink back in shame when the flash of light and the trumpet sounds and whatever all is going to happen as that begins to take place. We can live in confidence. And it's not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in what he has done. Be clear on the gospel in your life. You see, we need to realize, fill this in, we need to realize that these efforts, these efforts are the response of faith to the saving power of God's grace and work in our lives. This is the response of faith. When God comes and he calls us to himself, and when he gives us the gift of faith, he comes, and that gift of faith is met with action, with keeping. He gives us the power to obey. This is a response of faith. And so as you begin to keep yourselves pure, as you keep the commandments of Christ, as you keep the faith, as you keep yourself unstained by the world, as you keep from idols, as you keep God's word, as you keep the love of God, all of that is a response of faith to God's salvation in your life. You see, fill this in. We act because he acted. We love because he loved. And the key verse for this is 1 John. Again, we're looking at 1 John. It keeps coming up. Look at 1 John, and let's read 1 John 4.19. What does it say? We love because he first loved us. Amen. You see, he's the prime mover. He's the one who moved first. 
And I love this passage at the end of Ephesians. And I'll just notice, for those of you that are kind of well acquainted with, with the Bible, we, you would say, well, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are some of the key passages that talk about salvation. You remember verse 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. So you see, some people that know that, you ought to know that. Everybody here ought to know that. I wish I was deaf right now from all of you saying that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's, it's a gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no man can boast. Well, that comes after this passage. That's eight and nine. Look at four through seven. Look what it says in verse four. But God, circle that. The, the phrase, but God, is several times found in the New Testament, and it's usually the, the massive um, juxtaposition of our sin compared to his grace. Look what it says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, transgress- in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That, I mean, is there any better love letter that could be written? He's, what all he has done for us? And that's part of what we see in verse 18 of 1 John, chapter 5. He's saying the one who is born of God, that's Jesus, he's going to save those and he will keep you from the devil. Glorious truth. Well, I put in large print perhaps the most inspiring and assuring passages of the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. This great picture of God's salvation and how he is able to keep his people. Notice here and fill it in. God preserves his own. He always preserves his own. Now listen, I've preached pretty hard and strong where first John has preached pretty hard and strong about seeking to help you see the difference between those who know God and, sh- and show it with their lives, and those who claim God, but then there's disparity between what they claim and the way they live. We've pounded that pretty hard. Why have we pounded that? Because First John pounds that. So we need to pay attention to that. And it can be a wake-up call. It can be a wake-up call for people in this church who kind of been floating along and they've been living more like that. I mean, you're coming to church and listening to the gospel, but there's, there's not victory being in their life. And what it can be is it can be an awareness that maybe you don't know God. And who cares what anyone thinks? If you are sensing that you do not know God, that you're testing your faith and you're finding that your faith is not sure, listen, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks except what God thinks. And if you're embarrassed to come forward and say, I'm not sure that I've had saving faith, Um, but I'm starting to see the power of the gospel. I'm starting to see the difference between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. I would much rather be right with God and be, you know, kind of people look at me and wonder what, what happened than to keep everybody happy and be wrong with God. And so we've been right to listen to the message of 1 John in calling us to see that true salvation means you're going to live it. And it's not, it's not you're, you're living it so you can be saved. It's that you're living it because what? Because you are saved. And so that, that in itself can be a nice kick toward your, to your sanctification process. That you start saying, okay, I, I need to obey the Lord. I need to listen to him. I need to spend time with him. I need to come to know him. I need to live my life for him. So... We see those warnings, but church family, I want you to see that all of 1 John is about affirming true faith. 
These things have written, been written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says. He wants you to know that. He wants you to have confidence in that. He wants you to know that he's going to keep you from the devil. He wants you to have that confidence. And I want to say to you that you can have that confidence. And we see these incredible words of encouragement throughout the New Testament, not just in 1 John. In Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, we see that God preserves his own. Look what it says in verse 31. And, and let me remind you that chapter, Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, um, in the first part of chapter 8, are all about the mechanics of how God saves us, how he accomplishes that. And then we see at the end of this, in verse, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, we see the great glory of the security that we have in Christ, in God's salvation. So in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, God's going to give you everything you need in him. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead, and then he goes to the Father, and he is the one interceding for us. He is the one praying for us. He is the one coming and saying, Father, this one's mine. Look what it goes on to say. He's interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution... You know, there's a lot of Christians that have been through lots of tribulation, lots of distress. Some are being really persecuted. I would say there's very few in this room that are experiencing persecution. I know that there's some have. I know that there's some who have been laughed and jeered and, and mocked and ridiculed by their family or by their workers in this church. I know that some of you are living under that right now. Most of you are not. But there's others who have been put to death this week for their faith in Jesus. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, are these going to separate us from the love of Christ? Look what it says in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, a fallen world rejects not only Christ, but the followers of Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, underline that, nor anything else in all creation, that includes everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, because of the cross, he has given us a secure standing. And so your main job is to make sure that the cross is your hope. Your job is to make sure that the cross is what you're living for. If the cross is your hope, and if the cross is what you're living for, you have the great promises of God that you can claim. So fill it in. I've kind of said this. First John exposes false belief, and it assures true belief in Jesus. That's the point. That's how we can allow it to move in our life, to help us see the difference between those two things. We've just sung, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Look at this. The blessed assurance of the believer's security in Christ is a fundamental doctrine found throughout the scriptures. 
John wants believers to know it. And you can put below John, God, because God is the one who wrote this for you. He just wrote it through John. God wants you to know this. Mm. Church family, may this word have all of the impact that is needed for our walk with God. May this turn this church into a body of, of greater and greater carefulness in the way that we live, of greater and greater love for the grace of God, greater respect for what He has done, greater security in what He has promised. Some key questions. Lord, I pray that You would help us with this. How does seeing these scriptures regarding God's security of His people affect you? Now, maybe you're going to need to go back over this this week. I mean, this is part of the reason we print the notes. You can take it home. This, you, can, you can set aside some time to read these passages from 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 to the others that we've mentioned here about the great confidence that God has for His people. Well, my question to you is, how does this affect you? How do these passages make you feel? What emotions maybe arise? Here's a key question. What do they make you want to do? Now, I would say that if you could take or leave these passages, if you, if you think that this doesn't affect me at all, I'm, I'm really not interested in this, then I would say we need to pray for you in a very different way. I would say that that probably indicates that that you don't know the Lord. But if you start to think through this and you start to look at this and you start to, to marvel at His glory in your life, at His promises on your behalf, I believe that that affects us. It affects me, I can tell you that. When I read these things, I can tell you that it makes me want to be more faithful to Him. It makes me want to live for Him. It, makes me cause, it causes me to realize who He is and what He's done and who He's changed me to be that I might obey Him. Number two, do you have confidence that these promises apply to you? Do these promises apply to you about security? Why do you have that confidence or why not? Maybe you would say, I, I don't know that these do. Well, I would say that you need to spend time with God, and I would say that you need to spend time with some other people who that you know love God and that can help you with that. I, the pastors would love to spend time with you, but you know what? There's a lot of other people here that, for you, it may be better if you spend time with Danette Rivera. It may be better if you spend time with Pat Johnson. It may be better if you spend time with Kathleen Samaras than me. The church family can help one another pray together and work through things together. I want to encourage you to spend time with people as you work through this. Number three, how can or should or does this affect the decisions you make in the way that you live? When you think about the security that there is in Christ, how can this affect or how should this affect, how does it affect the decisions you make in the way that you live. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father in heaven, I pray this morning that as this teaching time ends and we consider what's just been said, I pray that for those who do not know you, I pray that today that they will come to know you. I pray that they would hear your voice and respond. I pray that at this moment that they would turn to you in faith. And Lord, I pray that you would do a work in calling them to yourself. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for some who've been holding out, thinking that they're not holy enough. They're right, they're not holy enough. 
That's why they need you. For some, they've been wondering what it is that you'll take away. I pray that they would see that you are worth infinitely more than anything that we would ever be worried about along those lines. Father, I pray that today would be the day of faith. And Lord, for Christians, I pray that they would be encouraged to live and to serve, Lord, to keep the gospel which they have believed and the spirit which has been given to them as a seal for their salvation. Father, I pray that we would be living more and more in the fruit of your spirit. Lord, I pray that today that as we consider these things that you would do a work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.